Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. Bon, alors, on va parler en français, hein? It's just so tempting to do it in French. Uh, thanks, everyone, for coming. I'm Anne-Christine, and this is Lindsay. And I just we would, thought we would start a little bit um, tonight by saying that what we're really hoping to do is have a conversation. And we took a few notes. We had a little bit of discussion about some of the things we wanted to talk about, but it's really going to be a very free-flowing thing for us tonight. Um, I've been asked to please, please read a little bit, and so I've agreed to, but for the most part, I'm trying to use my tour to have these conversations now with people that I've known in the 90s, but also younger activists like Lindsay, who I met uh, in Rome a few years ago, um, to talk about what some of the lessons are from the 90s and what we learned, what didn't work, and also what we're taking forward. So um, I really am appreciative that you could do this tonight. And um, I'm looking forward to it. And I just wanted to say that I met Lindsay in Rome um, when we were together for One Billion Rising. I was one of the global coordinators for Haiti. And I actually split my job with a woman who lived in Haiti um, because I was living mostly in the U.S. and didn't feel that it was really appropriate, even though I had a lot of the resources to do the job. And so we met, and uh, at the time, at sort of the end of this crazy 24, 36-hour of you know, brainstorming about everything we were going to do around sexual violence. This is when, you know, we were seeing ISIS uh, starting to go after people and Boko Haram <laughs> kidnapping women and these really big global issues where we were feeling so compelled to try to figure out how to respond. And we kind of took it all back and said, well, what do we want to work on in our own lives? And Lindsay said, you know, I'd really like to be the mayor of Los Angeles. <laughs> and we were like, oh, right on. You know, and so come back here. And yeah, she's been one of the roving mayors of West Hollywood. And I'm like, wow. So it's just really impressive and exciting to see that you've just gone for it. And um, one of the things we talked about is sort of being on the inside versus the outside in our politics. So it's one of the things we'll talk about tonight. Mm-hmm. So I thought we would start a little bit by um, by just briefly and, and have you start saying a little bit about your activism. You sure. know, wh- wh- sort of where did it start and, and you know, where are you, what are you working on now? Like, what's really burning up in you around your activism? Uh, this country. Um, <laughs> I, I, I think my work um, in public service started from my commitment to social justice. I was raised in a very small town in the east side of Cleveland, Ohio, um, where you saw everyone you knew at church on Sunday. So my current reality is very different from where I started as a child. And, um, you know, my activism now is really focused on um, gender and uh, gender lenses, intersectionality, and, um, you know, I I think a lot of the social justice issues um, currently in the United States revolve around economic justice. And, and, you know, when you take a look at um, all of the different isms that people are experiencing, a lot of it takes root in, you know, this growing gap 
between the haves and the have-nots. And until we take seriously that question, um, you know, I've heard it reflected in many different ways. Um, one of my friends who, uh, who um, many of you know, Tori Osborne, told me she used to um, actually be in a, in a poker, a women's poker group with Ann Richards, which I just, to me, that is so badass. And she said that Ann, um, Ann uh, one of the games, just in the middle of the hand, she slammed her cards down and she said, why is no one talking about women being poor? You know, what are we doing about poor women? And I think that, um, that woke up in Tori, and Tori and I have had many conversations around that. And I think a lot of the gender politics, a lot of social justice stuff, you know, it's all sort of related to how, what resources and access people have uh, financially and otherwise. And so, um, sort of as you alluded to, my grassroots activism started on my college campus. I was at a Catholic university, University of Notre Dame, where I did the vagina monologues, which is how we got connected. Nice. And um, I almost got kicked out of school for that, moved to a city where the mayor was actually in the show, so I knew I was home. Um, but, but um, you know, for me, um, I learned through that whole process that I was able to navigate bureaucracy well, and that makes you well-suited to deal with government. Um, so it's not so much that I don't want to be out on the streets with a bullhorn speaking my mind. I'm very comfortable doing that. Um, but I, I realized in my activism, you need folks on the inside who understand where you're coming from and are willing to do the work with you. And so I'm grateful to have the opportunity to have that seat so I can be the person on the inside for all of my friends who feel on the outside and, and so I can be a voice for, for the movement we want to represent. So uh, we met through One Billion Rising, a global campaign to end violence against women and girls, and um, pretty exciting stuff. I met Anne Christine, and she's just this, like, fiery person in a room. You know, you, like, I'm in a room with 50 global coordinators from all over the world, from over two, representing over 200 countries, and this woman just comes in, like, doesn't matter that we're all, in some ways, perfect strangers. She just lets, you know, speaks her mind, and I'm like, I need to be around this woman. This is the end energy I need to be around. So saying, you know, learning sort of where your journey took yeah. you and reading your story was, I mean, um, really inspiring. And, and I'm glad that you're here. Yeah, thank you. It's great. And I'm loving also, I'm very interested in this sort of what I call intergenerational conversation of people who are younger, but who are thinking about what did they pick up from the movements that I was in? You know, what, what did they retain? Or what were the narratives that they heard about? We'll talk about that a bit. So, um, I'll just give you a little bit of context, and it'll give you some context for this book. Um, I um, I was a very, I'd say, um, probably the last person you ever would have thought would have been an activist. Um, I was raised by parents who were, uh, my mother was born in France, my father was born in Haiti from a pretty, I think... Uh, they thought of themselves as kind of the fallen aristocracy in some ways. Like, they were the ones who didn't have any money when they got here, but they still had all of the trappings of aristocracy. Um, but the cultural sort of idea of uh, being uh, from a, a certain class in which um, you were to be of service, um, but privileged. And um, so at the same time, um, I uh, spent all of my childhood, up until I was about 13, every summer in Haiti, which at the time still now is, you know, arguably, I would say, among the most acutely uh, uh, economically um, unequal societies. Uh, the poverty is so staggering that it's, 
it just take, takes your breath away still and uh, so to be in a, that environment when I was very small we're talking small two, three, four, five and to be a member of a family that was white and rich and had servants and everything uh, was a very uncomfortable thing I felt uncomfortable being very young and I could really recognize even from that age that there was something really, really wrong about mm-hmm. that um, but I was only able to really address it when I was starting to be 10, 11, and 12, and 13 years old um, but I witnessed a lot. Uh, that was also at the time of the actual dictatorship, of the Duvalier dictatorship. And um, I, I absorbed a lot. So I spent two months there, and then I would spend one month in France. And so I, even though I was raised in the States, I felt like uh, I wasn't an American. They were not Americans. They, were, they thought Americans were savages, to be honest with you. Um, very uncultured. Um, and... Um, Eventually, my father really became an American, became a total Reagan conservative, which is horrible. But, uh, but just to say that I kind of had, I think, this early imprint that much later informed what I have done since. And I do really feel like my life is very much redress for what I consider to be the absolute crimes and whatever you want to call it, crimes of not only my family and my class, but their culture. And Mm -hmm. so to the extent that I can in any way um, stand for something else, I'm doing it. So that's really an important part. And what I do in this book actually is try to know more about that culture that I feel informed me. Um, I did become an activist, much uh, part of it through ACT UP, but even before ACT UP, uh, when I was coming just out of college, I started to come out. And I came out into a place in New York where the people that I met were getting involved in women's uh, rights. There was the peace movement. Uh, I ended up in short order at the Seneca Women's Peace Camp, which I can't even explain what it is like to be, but it's like the wood, political Woodstock for lesbians where yeah. every single day what? I got How arrested. How was I not invited? <laughs> I know, I know. Right. A, tr- a truly extraordinary event uh, where I was, where I met and was mentored by women that today I look back and think, wow, like I didn't even know what I was there doing that. Grace Paley, just just people who were such seasoned American leftist progressives with analysis and experience and every day was just hours and hours of listening, watching how people strategize. So it was just like a super intensive re-education. And I emerged from that less critical of the left because I had thought the left were losers and more aware that maybe I had some some things to learn. So once AIDS came along, uh, it was one of the things I began to focus on and I was trying to be a journalist. Um, I was observing for much of my 20s until about 25, I was observing what other people were doing, writing about them, but detached. And it was really AIDS that forced me to, um, to kind of shift over. And that's what I talk about a bit in, the, in this book, um, where I could no longer be neutral. And actually, I feel like I began to learn really what it means to be a good journalist for me and a good storyteller. And even now, I'm looking, mo- even though I'm excited about this book, I'm more looking forward to what I have ahead of me as a writer because now I'm really learning to turn the mirror on myself, which I feel is one of the most valuable things that we can do. We'll talk about that later in terms of activism. So that's my journey. Um, I've done a fair amount 
kind of activism. After AIDS, I did uh, work in Rwanda with women who were genocidal rape survivors, started an HIV program there that is continuing, and that's a little bit how I ended up with One Billion Rising. After the earthquake in Haiti, I went there and began to focus on uh, sexual violence as one of the gender sort of aftershocks of that catastrophe. And um, I have continued to really look at gender as one of the lenses that I look at in my own work. Um, and even now, uh, in this work, as I'm looking at the far right, as I look at what's happening in Europe, gender is sort of front and center for me in terms of um, something to, to think about, something to help guide my analysis and, and, uh, and my lens. Mm. Yeah. So um, what I thought I would do is do just a little tiny short meeting, just a little entertainment, um, nothing too serious, uh, because, um, because I thought that uh, we'll be talking pretty seriously in a moment. And um, it was tough for me to choose. This book is, um, is based, it's really my diaries. It's my 90s diaries. I didn't write them every day, but I wrote them a lot. And actually, I started them before the 90s, and they go on after the 90s, but I chose from 1993 until 1999 because it's when I really began to be kind of taken over by an internal voice, I suppose, and also began to really research things like um, why was it that France had really never addressed the Holocaust? You know, uh, what was going on with my parents' generation? And is that why maybe there was a possibility that Fran you know, fascism could, 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 could return? At the time, Le Pen, the National Front, was just beginning. They were clashing with ACT UP. Here in the U.S., we had the Christian right, and ACT UP was confronting that. So a good part of this book is my very much personally beginning to research how am I linked or not to these events in history. And I say, the, for me, the political is personal. And the extent to which we can connect with something is the extent to which we care about it. So I, I was trying to very much research um, to try to understand even my own choices in terms of my activism and you know what I was concerned about. I'm also an AIDS journalist, so a lot of this book takes place in the period before the arrival of protease inhibitors. I had a number of friends who you meet in the book, some of whom died, some of whom live. I'd say about half-half. Um, and um, I was very involved in trying to find treatments for them, trying to research the science and trying to help them get the treatments, trying to make the trials happen. So that's another part of it. And then I had a very complicated love life. So I have a lot of failed relationships in this book, a lot of dyke drama, as you would call it. So that's the comedy part. <laughs> that's the comedy part. And, um, and um, yeah, and so, um, but I just, you know, one of the things I have to say is that when I was, I thought about publishing this a couple of years ago, and I really wondered if Americans would be interested at all because it's about France a lot and fascism, and you know, oh my God, people, you know. And then it's, of course, ironic what's happened since mm -hmm. then. So now, for me, I feel like this is a great time, and that's why I wanted to use it for these conversations. Um, so let me see if I can figure out where I was going to read from. That would help. And I'm just reading again, just a little short piece. Act up reinforced an important lesson. Don't wait for someone else to fight your battles. Even within ACT UP, we still have to push to become even more visible, to demand more active solidarity from the boys. We being the feminists and sapphists, who statistically are still far below the public radar compared to gay men, both with regard to HIV and AIDS and general visibility. Most lesbians I know really don't want to think about a possible risk of exposure to HIV, despite all the ways we women get down with each other. So our battle isn't just with the public or New York City officials, 
but our own community, our own circles. The conversation is never easy. It's true that exposure via saliva is nil, so oral hands and sex toys are safe. But there's a but. What if a girl or woman has HIV and is on her period? What if the sex is rough and someone bleeds? How does she get HIV, people ask. Lesbians have sex with men and shoot smack. I have close friends who fall into the category and struggle with addiction. Others do sex work. There are a lot of lapsed Catholic girls out there making a little extra money or paying off student loans, working as dancers in strip clubs, offering lap dances that sometimes go further if they like a client, or if the money is just too tempting. If you went to a strip club, you would know this. I didn't myself until I started having friends who worked in the clubs. There's, an S, there's a sex work sisterhood. The women I know are safe sex educators. They're S&M bondage mamas and daddies, and they're lesbians. Others grew up fast and hard in high school, were hardcore punk teens who loved Jello Biafra and the Dead Kennedys, were little dykes early on, then got kicked out of their families, churches, and hometowns, taking refuge on a friend's couch, or cycled through foster homes that looked poorly on gay children and ended up on the streets or in juvie, juvenile detention centers. So you see the pattern. My point is that lesbians are vulnerable to risk and we need to talk about it. Then there's poverty and racism and sexual violence. There's, that's something no one talks about. Not enough. Double or triple that for women of color, especially black women in the United States, who are statistically ten times more likely to have HIV than white women. We're also affected by other diseases that aren't getting enough research or funding, including cancers of the breast and cervix and all the autoimmune diseases like Lyme and SF and lupus and M excuse me, like Lyme and M S and lupus that friends we know started having after college. We need more attention to lesbian health issues. That's the message we've been giving to ACT UP to our communities and to the scientists and government too. We need research into HIV in women and in lesbians. We need lesbians in clinical trials. Who cares about lesbians? We do. The women of ACT UP. The caped crusader Avengers. We're making noise about it. I'm supposed to go to Maxine Wolf's house this week for a potluck to talk about the lesbian HIV agenda. We're also playing an action to target Rudy Giuliani and the Dyke March. I want to go out, but I want to write too. Is it always going to be like this? Such a conflict between activism and art for me. I want to do both, but the week's half over and it's been all writing and not fun writing, not my journey with Cell. Sorry, side note that Cell is a character in my, in my book. Maybe I'll find this weekend. Max is one of those women who put together ACT UP's 1990 book on HIV and women. She's Jewish, a red diaper baby with great daughters. I think of her as a crone in the most positive sense of the word, with long gray hair and wise woman energy. She and I have clashed at times in ACT UP and the Avengers. She's very fierce in her politics, like Sarah Shulman. I suppose I'm quite opinionated, too. There are two other kitchen table founding Avengers, Anna Simo, who's an old buddy, and Marie Honan. I include Anne McGuire because she was at our first meeting, even if she did get, didn't get involved right then. The Irish lasses of Ilgo, feisty dykes. Truth is, we're all opinionated and passionate girls. I know I should say women, but with the Avengers, we feel like girls in our girls' club. We're also dykes, as in capital D lesbians. Dykes are the slur that come before the blow. Dykes are the unruly, stereotypical, angry lesbian that society fears. We wanted to take the word back, play with it, own it. Now we do. Even me, because I was never a big dyke. 
When we did our first visibility action at a schoolyard in Queens in November 92, I wore a t-shirt that said, I was a lesbian child. I thought about it at the time. Was I a lesbian child? I don't think I was. I came to my sense of sexuality late in college, but I knew what I was at age five. A boy pirate, a scout, a cowboy. Not much of a girl, though. Not someone who could tolerate dresses. I should have worn a t-shirt that day that said, I was a lesbian boy. <laughs> that would have been much more accurate. I was a little tomboy butch, definitely. But I never thought about other girls, or boys really, except to wonder why I didn't want to kiss the boys. I just felt nothing for them, or anyone, except my teachers. Hmm. I had a mad schoolgirl crush on my high school teacher, only a bit older than I was at the time. But it was a fantasy. He was safe, out of reach. I was a late bloomer. So now I'll embrace the slur. Call me a butch dyke. I won't be offended at all. I'll just work to fill those big boots because there are some awesome, gorgeous, handsome, strong women out there. These days, the Avengers are full of younger dykes who don't seem worried in the least about taking on their labels either. They're a sex-positive, gender-fluid bunch, ready to have some fun, stir things up a bit. We came up with the name Lesbian Avengers, a retro-campy comic book superwoman hero name, to make people laugh and disarm them and to scare them just a little bit. A name that ensures we don't take ourselves too seriously either, which is the stereotype people have of scary lesbians. Serious, shrill, sexless, and no fun at all. I look at that picture I showed Philippe of the big DC dyke march, all of us holding garbage can shields to drum on, sunny, funny noisemakers. Our protest read as theater and fun to those watching. But if they took a flyer, saw the names of women like Hattie Mae Cohens, who was burned alive for being a lesbian, or those who are sick with AIDS, they would have felt our fury and our sorrow and our demands for justice too. The only thing I was initially uncertain about was the Avenger logo, but it was passed by group consensus. After some debate but we don't sanction violence. We adopted a little bomb logo. Again, the campy joke. Only now do we see how much that little bomb scares people. So does our signature action, eating fire, something we've all learned to do. We were taught by one of the aerialist's best friends, Jenny Miller. She's a bearded lady and a lesbian has a political circus, Circus Amok. Eating fire is a little circus trick, and what girl doesn't like the circus? Once you get over the hump of putting a kerosene-soaked rag torch lit on fire in your mouth, it's easy. <laughs> Tip, don't close your eyes. Your hair can catch on fire. You just close your mouth over it. It cuts oxygen off in the flame, which dies instantly. The torch can leave an icky taste in your mouth, but boy, does it impress a crowd. And cops. Dykes with torches, watch out. We did have quite a few straight girl allies who showed up to March's honorary dykes in D.C. They were more than ready to don a Supergirl cape and eat some fire, too. I guess that song is true. Girls just want to have fun. <laughs> so, uh, when, you, when I read the, the Avengers and the name and... Uh, I, in this moment of uh, Wonder Woman taking over everyone's consciousness. I mean, even in our politics, it's, you know, every, there were so many common themes that came back that were, that were relevant now. So um, I, I guess um, you talked a little bit about, um, about creating this superhero persona to sort of turn on its head how people embrace the lesbian community. Did it work? How, what was your experience of that? I think that the... At the time that we started Lesbian Adventures, you know, it, 
first of all, it grew very quickly as a movement for a period of time, but in each local place, it really was kind of defined and took on whatever issues were relevant to that particular city and group of people. So I can't really speak, I think, to... In fact, I was just telling Judy, I went to San Francisco to the archives the other day, and I thought the Avengers had been this tiny group, and I found all this footage and all these actions, and I had no idea. So it was really thrilling, but I was like, what? You know, in my own... What I think of my own kind of movement. Um, but in New York, I think that we... You know, we were very defined, the people who, st who started our particular group, by, uh, by our involvement in both the, uh, the sort of gay rights movement around um, the Irish, uh, what do you call it, um, parade, and, mm -hmm. and just, you know, really classic sort of Catholic homophobia. Like, that kind of had been the issue. And in the school board and in the school. So it's kind of institutionalized within the kind of bureaucracy of New York, which has a lot of Catholic, in particular the diocese had a lot of impact at the time. We had Cardinal O'Connor, all these people who were very in in influential. And then AIDS. So both of those had been kind of things. And so I think we felt very much that we were going to direct our actions at two, at two targets. One was definitely the broader LGBT community, our own community. Um, we really felt that um, we wanted to give a space for younger lesbians in particular at the time, and that included trans women who were starting to define as lesbians, um, to be able to be out in the streets. We felt like there hadn't been any visibility of the issues that were lesbian issues. That was one thing, and that we were definitely about having fun. Because I think that it had been so serious with AIDS, it had been so so defined by that um, in some ways, such a medicalized almost um, struggle that I think the, the issues around sexuality in some ways were very different and we wanted to be able to really bring forward the evolution of sexuality that had taken place. I mean, this was when there had been a huge pro-sex movement. Women had been making incredible stuff, but it hadn't really been that visible outside of the sort of subcultures of the lesbian in, in a lesbian movement, and even for gay men. So, I mean, for me, I, I just remember being being amused, but also really considering that this was radical to see, for example, we made a huge bed and pulled it down Fifth Avenue, and girls were making out on it and having sex. I mean, I just thought. <laughs> You know, when do you see this? I mean, you don't see this in, in, in our culture. And, and, and I just thought, you know, it, it didn't take anything for those younger women to take that leap, whereas it was harder in some ways for some of the women who were older coming into the Avengers. There were more issues. They were also not as accustomed to working with gay men as the younger women. So that was another part of it. So for me, it was a lot of it is when I look at today and the kind of shifting that's happened and queer as a, you know, sort of women not identifying necessarily as much with lesbians or, or, or even a gay male, but, but just this kind of broadening of sense of gender, I was seeing it then. And so it, it kind of thrills me to see where the conversation has gone. But then the other part of it was, um, was institutionally. And I still feel that um, what strikes me is that lesbians have been, I think, arguably, I mean, I, I would love to be proven wrong, but I don't think I am wrong, arguably at the forefront of so many of the social movements in this country truly in positions of leadership, not only, you know, kind of the person in the third or fourth or whatever, but truly in leadership positions, defining the strategy, defining the message, defining the issues, taking, on, taking to the streets. And yet we don't see that when we think of American progressive movements, we don't think of lesbians as having been change makers for our society. And I think that that should change. I, I really would, would like to see that because I think it's true. Absolutely. I mean, I think we're, we're barely telling women's stories, uh, you know, as a whole, let alone, um, you know, really, um, 
bringing to the fore lesbian history and and the accomplishments of, of lesbian women. I mean, I think it's clearly missing. Um, you mentioned talking about, or you mentioned this, your struggle between your activism and being an artist. And, you know, I think especially during the time of the AIDS crisis, you know, you, you needed to have self-care to be doing the work that you were doing during that time and seeing what was going on in your community. Was that what art was for you or did your art become your activism? I think that had there not been AIDS, I would have definitely had a very different path. No question. Um, even now, I feel that way. I feel like I don't have the luxury with what's happening with our country, proto-fascism, Trump. I don't have the luxury of taking six months or eight months to kind of sit and research and then write the kinds of stories and books that I would like to write. I feel like I have to be in the streets every day and I have to find a way to do my activism and transform it in the same moment into whatever this thing will be. And so that's actually become my process. I'm now, I finally found my way. Um, but I think that this book helped me do that. I struggled with this book um, a lot. When I started it, I felt like I was seeing what was happening in France. It's one of the reasons I wanted to look at it, and the States. And so I kind of wanted to be, I think I mentioned, I wanted to be like a Cassandra. I wanted to be the person who kind of tells other people. <laughs> and I was doing so much research, and uh, it was hard to find it. I spent tons of time in archives trying to figure out, okay, what's the connection between the people who are behind Le Pen right now, or this was in the 90s, right, and the people who were not convicted for the crimes of Vichy, because I would see them, and I would, you know, and so I was doing hardcore stuff, but um, I couldn't quite figure out a way to tell to tell those stories, um, and I couldn't figure out a way to tell those stories for an American audience, and I was writing in English, and I also wanted to, my imagination was always on fire, and so I, I couldn't write a straightforward documentary kind of journalism book at all, and, 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 I, and I would try, and, and it wouldn't work, so for for those 10 years, I actually had two books going. One is this book that is here is essentially my diaries of the research that I do. And then another one is an entire separate story of the characters who are in this book that I developed. And when I first thought to publish it, I thought, well, I'll go with my, my journal, then there's mine, there's... And then it, but it was this, this, you know, massive book of 1,000 pages, and the publishers looked at it and they were like, oh, my God, that's way... Wait, that's like... You know, the, the, the documentary of Apocalypse Now and Apocalypse Now. <laughs> and so I looked at it and I thought, you know, what's really a value? And I thought the greater value is to show the readers my journey because I think people, I always feel like everyone is just the same as me. Like everyone is like me. If I'm thinking this, they probably are too. If I'm dealing with this, they probably are too. So to answer the question for me now, um, there's no separation. Um, the only thing is, is I feel like I did lose some time um, being younger. All the things we do as a younger person, creative person, doubting for a long time anyone read. That was my biggest issue. I stopped writing for a while. because Nobody reads in America especially. And so I stopped using what I think was one of my weapons, which is my words. And I really became much more of an activist. You know, I went and spent years in programmatically, making programs, getting people treatment, things like that. And I regret it now that I, that I lost faith in, um, in words and in storytelling. So now I feel like I'm, I have a sense of urgency that I can't take any of this for granted. And if anything, I don't want to sleep at all. I just want to write my ass off any moment that I'm even awake because I feel like 
I'm lucky enough to realize that now. And we, we can't take it for granted. We don't know where we'll be in a year or two. Anything could happen. And so and in your journey, um, recognizing that we all have this sort of sense of urgency around everything that's happening, um, you know, you worked in, uh, during the AIDS crisis. You were focusing on, you know, giving voice and vis- uh, visibility to lesbians, to sex workers, to health issues, all kinds of things. How have you chosen where to focus your activism so you don't just completely burn out um, and feel like everything is, you know, the sky is falling everywhere? You know, how did you choose um, so you could, you know, um, uh, take steps forward in, in making uh, accomplishments in those areas? I think not just ACT UP, but I would say the AIDS movement and and being in places where people have very few resources like Haiti, being a lot with organizers in countries like that where things are so extreme. I've learned to be specific. Um, and I've learned to be more strategic. So I do think about what is it that I want to try to accomplish in the next three months? And I try to choose goals that give me an accomplishment so that I get momentum with them. Um, and I also feel like I think um, I don't have the the audacity to think that I have the answers to most things. So I really, I've learned from my activism to try to think about where are my strengths and where, where, where not my strength. In other words, where is somebody else much better placed to be taking forward this message? It may not be appropriate for me to be in any number of communities trying to pass a message. So what is my role? And so that lets me feel content to do what I can and and let others do what they have to do. I also get great pleasure in that, in, 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 in being in networking, in alliance work, in coalition work. I love the idea of giving other people voice and a platform. So I have found actually that, um, that the reason I don't get tired but I'm given energy is because I have found that you can do so much with so little that it's actually astonishing how small, how much you can accomplish with, with such a small group with so little. Um, and, you, and you also have to recognize that um, it is not yours to do everything. Um, so you, you can choose. And um, I don't know. And then the, I think the other part of it, as you probably got from this book, is it's really important for me to have fun. It's definitely important for me to play. And um, that hasn't stopped. I think, if anything, that's gotten worse. Um, <laughs> it's a good thing. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I just, um, I, it's a blast. I think the political work right now I'm doing, it's just a blast. And what I mean by that is that I'm curious about the people who show up. So if three people show up for something, I'm curious about who those three people are. So I just get a lot of energy. And I just tend to go with, like, whatever's moving and is positive, that's where I tend to put myself. And I recognize that there's negatives, but I just don't give them as much energy. And I feel like those are choices. So mm-hmm. I've learned that. And I think a lot, often in this book, I'm, I sort of mantra my parents said, you know, choose happy. Choose happy. Um, and I think it's because I grew up with uh, a, a mother who was very sick when I was younger, at 13. She was constantly about to die. Uh, I lost people early on. I lost friends in Haiti when I was a reporter in my 20s. I saw a lot of people get killed around me. Then AIDS happened. And so I feel like um, I'm incredibly lucky. Mm. And so I don't take it for granted. But I take that. I feel like, I, I feel like let me not squander that, you know? Yeah, no. I, I think um, to your point about having fun, people right now are so afraid to turn on the news that often I find myself getting some of those, you know, daily news bits from... Um, 
political comedy news instead of, you know, CNN and things, because I, it's easier to digest the horror, um, when it comes, you know, sort of in a, in a comedic or more fun delivery. Um, it's easier to, for me to sort of take in what's going on and start to make sense of it than when it's just constantly delivered in our current 24 hour news cycle. Um, but I, I think, um, one, um, I think as as you were moving forward um, in the AIDS crisis, I, I I was born June 30th, 1982, the day the ERA failed ratification. But I've always lived in a world that's always um, that's had AIDS. I've never known a, a world without it. And so, you know, a, a lot of the stories that I've heard, especially what's happened in my community in West Hollywood, um, which experienced it in in a very profound way. Um, you know, ta- there was so much about the uh, about lesbians coming to the aid of gay men who were dying um, but you and you talk about too the experience of lesbian women with AIDS who themselves had it how how was that relationship uh, I always hear it as lesbians coming to the aid of gay men um, and yet I, I don't uh, ever hear it sort of as a reciprocal relationship it was always sort of women in service to men is is how the history has been told so can you talk a little bit about what the gender dynamic was there and and how the community responded and and um, what the what the lesbian community in particular how that experience impacted the lesbian community well I, I don't know if I can speak so broadly about the lesbian community. Uh, I think there's so many lesbian communities, first of all. But I would say that in my small circle, um, I found that um, there was no one, for example, in ACT UP who would come into the rooms of ACT UP who wouldn't recognize that the women who were present, even though they were smaller in numbers, had an analysis, a true analysis a social analysis. And what we're talking about today, which is intersectional organizing, you know, this idea of um, that, that while this is impacting us, um, what we're talking about is, you know, um, it's, it's structural. It's structural violence. It's, um, it's inequity that comes from the society. So um, we can't just treat it as this, uh, this issue that's affecting uh, this group of men here. Uh, we have to look at it in terms of wh- where it's impacting other communities and where are we best placed, again, to work in coalition. Um, and it wasn't an easy thing to do. I, I think that there's a real reason why gay men have the voice because they were being directly impacted um, in sheer numbers that were, you know, so, so um, devastating. Um, And also everything about, I think, gay male subculture and gay male sexuality has a specificity that I think made that narrative uh, be very important and one for them to talk about. I do think that the story of both women including what I would call straight women. No one was very straight in ACT UP, but straight women um, and lesbians um, is one that does need to be told uh, with more narrative. I also think that's true for the people of color who are in ACT UP and the people who are working in other communities. Um, For example, I was ACT UP, I, I did a lot of actions, but I was more working with the Haitian community and on immigration issues. Uh, and I was reporting. So I kind of felt like I was an ambassador a little bit to those communities. I mean, I would be at ACT UP, but I was always in communities. And those communities, you couldn't talk about HIV so openly. People didn't want to self-identify. I would go and deal with the doctors, not with the activists or even with the gay people that were my colleagues and were Haitian because they couldn't be out. So it was kind of a different, a different experience. But I think we learned a lot. I was just going to say the other thing, just to keep in mind when you're talking about the AIDS experience that Anne had that I was part of also in ACT UP, 
we were not there to take care of anyone. It was not a social service organization. It was an activist organization. So we were there for political reasons. And I did have a number of lesbian friends who came into one meeting and said, fuck this, it's all guys, I'm not doing it. Yeah. And we're not at all interested and did not want to be engaged. And there was a huge learning curve for the gay men in the room. And I think what Anne tapped into is incredibly important to remember. The women who came into that group already knew what was happening politically. What yeah. I mean by that is, so we had all these men, many of whom were quite privileged, who were shocked that they were being treated so poorly by the medical establishment. Maxine used to talk about this all the time. Hey, guess what? Women have been treated like this since time immemorial. Yeah. So welcome to it. So that, the, the shifting awareness, the raising of consciousness was a lot of times for men in terms of understanding race, sex, gender, and class in a way that they'd never heard. And then I would say as a young lesbian who came completely out of the lesbian world, did not know gay men, wasn't really interested in gay men, suddenly was introduced to a, a sexualized culture as young gay men that was very, very different than the lesbian feminist culture um, that had existed that I had come out of. But I just want to make that point about caretaking because ACT UP was, I mean, this is a group that, you know, in a course of eight weeks, we would lose three or four people a week. And I've had friends say to me, didn't you guys have any, like, trauma or grief counseling? I was like, no. We didn't believe in it. We went right to an action. I'm not saying that that was wise. I think everyone had trauma, and I think it showed up a lot later. But it was very much about channeling political work. And it was really fun. I think that, the again, it's the stereotypes of narratives around women being caretakers. That's part of it. And so, oh, of course women showed up to be in this kind of way. But I also see it shifting, and I think that as more people write these stories, uh, we're going to see these narratives emerge more, which is why it's so important to. Um, I, I wanted to change it and sort of talk a little bit. I mean, we're going to start now to have more of a conversation here, but um, to talk a little bit about what we're seeing now, I'm very curious to know um, from you, like what did, when you look back, or I don't know what you took from the 90s, but are there, you've worked a lot here, you're working a lot with, uh, with gay men. I think from my perception, West Hollywood is a pretty white place. Mm -hmm. um, so I think there's a lot of white gay men and lesbians who live here. Um, and now we're seeing a lot of need to really address this kind of um, very much emergent white supremacy agenda, racism agenda, and a lot of misogyny that we're seeing coming out of this period of time with Trump. I'm wondering what what your experiences have been in working with gay men here as a feminist, um, as someone who is speaking with and for the queer community, but also going out, as you say, into these other communities. What are you finding? Well, I mean, I, I think people look at West Hollywood to sort of be this, as this beacon of progressivism in many ways. And yet, just as you say, you know, our, um, we have, yes, we do identify uh, 40, uh, over 40% of our city identifies as LGBT. Um, wow. We have um, we have a, a, a shrinking percentage, but a percentage, a significant percentage, nonetheless, of uh, Russian-speaking um, immigrants. Some of whom were Holocaust survivors, uh, served during World War II, and, and, and escaped Nazism uh, in the Soviet former Soviet Union. And you know, the, our city was sort of founded on a desire to uh, protect affordable housing for these people who sort of were living in this outcast part of Los Angeles. 
Angeles that was unincorporated and people really didn't pay attention to. And so, um, so in, in that experience, there's sort of always this like, you know, um, desire to stand up to the government that was happening to them. Um, now that we are the government in a place where people, um, you know, we represent those ideas, the, um, the identity that many people formed in their rebellion, um, doesn't really always work in our dynamic because we're with, um, we're with them on a lot of those major issues. So, um, our politics bring us, um, uh, in, in agreement in most cases, and then the things that we disagree on, we disagree on very strongly. Um, so, uh, you know, it lo- a lot of the local issues, but in terms of the identity, um, I think um, we're start- I'm starting to see more activism. You know, there's uh, in in with the rise of Black Lives, there's been white people for Black Lives has come together, and um, some of those meetings are starting to happen in West Hollywood and in West Side cities. Um, a lot of where the white folks who want to be supportive of of the movement, um, you know, are figuring out what their place is and supporting the movement and, and, um, really taking responsibility for our understanding of intersectionality. And I, I really am grateful to the example of black, black lives matter, uh, to force us to learn how to engage properly and, and really understand, um, how, when we deal with privilege and, and understanding our privilege and what comes with it. Um, I think in my experience working with gay men, um, in our city, you know, I've, uh, found some to be very supportive, found some to be very catty. Um, but you know, I think, uh, there's, as with any, any sort of community, you have your supporters and not, and especially in, at a local government level, you're focused on things that, you know, at the end of the day, it's about, you know, transportation and fixing potholes and things that people can find agreement on. But I, I think in terms of some of the identity, there there's definitely a sexism that exists in, in the community. I know when I ran in 2011, it was a very brutal, um, brutal race, and I, I lost that election. And, what was um, brutal about it? I, you know, uh, the way I was spoken about, uh, one... Um, uh, one of the local publications referred to me as a 20-something pixie with winter frost eyeshadow, blonde pixie with winter frost eyeshadow. And, um, you know, it was my age, it was my gender, it was everything that wasn't taken seriously. And um, despite the fact that I had, you know, worked um, in, you know, on all of these issues and was very much with and for the community, um, not to not be taken seriously based on who I was um, and my difference. So I think, um, you know, there's, there are, is definitely tension at times, but I think there's a desire for folks to, um, there's a desire to work together. What I, where I see the clash most happening now actually is more intergenerationally within our community. Um, you know, folks who are really, um, committed to preserving our history because they are our history in some ways. And if they're gone, the history's gone, um, sort of in tension with, um, you know, a new generation where, a, a perceived assimilation is happening where, you know, um, as opposed to wanting to be, you know, a gay only space now, uh, you know, gay friends want to bring their straight friends and, you know, to some of these formerly gay only or lesbian only spaces. And what, what does that mean? And how does that change the culture? So, um, I think there are lots of dynamics that are happening, but I, I would say that the most interesting things I see happening really are on, on the intergenerational level. I'm going to take two more. We'll just have two more questions, and I want to open it up more to you guys. Um, one of my questions has to do right now with um, the role of 
because you're in local government. Um, what I see is real parallels with the 90s, uh, and specifically with AIDS. When I look, for example, at the attacks of the Trump administration on health care or on reproductive health, what we saw in the 90s, is my experience, certainly late 80s, 90s, was the complete failure of the federal government to sort of deliver services and the criminalization of our lives and our bodies. And as a result, two things happened. One, um, the community had to create new resources. Uh, they had to create spaces that didn't exist. They had to create things like community-based trials for HIV drugs. They had to create uh, social service programs that for trauma that didn't exist. Um, any number of things. So a, a, a sort of what we call almost like a parallel safety net. And there was a lot of tension around that because you don't want to ask government to abdicate its responsibility at the same time if government is not absent, you need to care. So it was sort of both. And the other part was holding government accountable. And one thing that happened was a lot of shifting of money to be able to say, like, well, we have to shift this money here in order to be able to make sure that the most vulnerable parts of our communities are going to get services. So I wanted to ask you about that now. For example, if we think of being here, we know that trans uh, folks are definitely going to be the ones who are on the most front line of being targeted uh, already from some of the um, from some of the policies that are coming even though we are in California um, we know that uh, the poorest those living who are dependent on the kinds of programs whether they you know um, whether they're the Medicaid programs or whatever that that again the safety net is changing insurance may disappear how are you thinking about that what kind of conversations are you having at in your government, and, and are you looking for models? Where are you looking for models for this? Well, I, you know, our city was one of the first to recognize uh, recognize AIDS and our role as a local government to be in service to those who uh, who were living with or dying with AIDS. And so, um, you know, our government has all, we um, are quite unique in that we set aside about twelve percent of our budget, our annual budget every year, specifically for social service programming. Um, we're very lucky in that regard. We we plan well financially, to, so we're also able to take care of people in ways that most governments don't. Um, but I think one thing that's been interesting to me, um, I, I helped to create the um, our city's first community response team to domestic violence. And one of the things that's been interesting to me is sort of understanding how, you know, um, people who are ex escaping violent homes or sexual trauma or, you know, women sort of took care of, of each other and, and then eventually, you know, rape treatment centers, domestic violence shelters, those things kind of became, you know, part of, you know, institutions and part of our, our world. But now the, because they are sort of these separate entities, you know, that personal touch and, and the protection and 